Galatians chapter 4 is our text for the morning. Galatians 4, page 490, 470, I'm, excuse me, I'm dyslexic this morning, 974, Galatians 4, <clears throat> as we work our way through this letter from Paul to these ancient churches. There are many false hopes that people hold on to in order to be right with God. And in the age of the ancient Roman Empire, there were false teachers who infiltrated the churches in the Roman province of Galatia, propagating their false gospel on to churches that Paul had started, had founded, and poured his life and soul into. And in particular, their message was, if you would be justified before God, then you must observe God's law. That was their message. It was a legal message, a message of merit before God by law-keeping. They taught that males who would become Christians must receive circumcision because that was the sign of being in covenant with God, in relationship with God, that you must observe the holy days that God had prescribed and observe the special diet that God had ordained. These were acts of obedience that marked the Jews as a distinct group. These were the sons of Abraham and so sons of God, God's elect, God's chosen people. These were people under God's law, and they were zealous for, the, for Paul's converts in Galatia that they too come under the law and so be justified before God. But in their zeal for the law, they had actually missed the whole point of the law. They had missed what the law was all about, to whom it pointed, what it was for. They were captivated by the Old Testament type and picture of God's family, and they'd missed the reality that family, God's family, is only uh, in and through Christ, his one and only begotten son. And in their zeal for the law, they were really cutting people off from, from Christ in uh, their false teaching. Instead of looking in hope to the Messiah, they looked to Abraham and to the fleshly sign that they were part of his children and so the children of God. And, you know, our historical context is very different. That's true. But the fundamental issues are really the same. The gospel of salvation through Christ alone is just as important today as it ever was. And this text and these passages have important um, instruction for us in the gospel so that we might stand firm in the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ and so be right with God uh, now and in the day of judgment. And so our text is Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through down the, through the end of the chapter, verse 31. Galatians 4, 21. He writes, 
Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These two women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. For she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, now he quotes from Isaiah's prophecy, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than, the one, than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise. And just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers... We are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Now, once again, Paul is appealing to the biblical account of Abraham for his argument. We've seen how back in chapter 3, he went to the account of Abraham to talk about justification by faith. Abraham was very likely one of the historical figures, probably the main historical biblical figure to whom the the Judaizers, these false teachers, pointed. They pointed to the obedience of Abraham, how he obeyed God, how he did all that was righteous before God. And uh, Paul is appealing to the same uh, figure, the same historical person, but he is correcting their thinking and setting it on a right uh, footing as he interprets the Old Testament. Well, he's been doing that now for a, a chapter and a half or a chapter or so. The, the last week we looked at a text where he just sort of pulls out of that for a moment and just starts pouring out his pastor's heart to them. And now he, he comes back and he begins again to argue theologically from the context of, of Abraham and God's covenant with Abraham uh, for the gospel. And so we give our attention again to a, a theological text, a passage that, that we have to grapple with, the significance of these things in order to continue to hold on to the true gospel of Jesus Christ and Christ alone. And so in this text, um, you have really four things uh, going on. I'm just sort of showing you on the surface level what Paul's doing here. I'm sure it's obvious to you, but in verses 21 through 23, just just so you can kind of keep track of it here a little bit better, you'll see that he's just recounting the basic outline of the biblical history uh, with regard to Abraham and his two the two wives that are mentioned here and the, their, their sons, their children. And then secondly, in verses 24 through 26, Paul is giving the interpretation of that account. 
the interpretation of that story. Then the third thing that he does in verse 27 is to appeal to additional prophetic support for his interpretation of the Old Testament history. And then finally, in verses 28 to 31, he gets to the application, the practical application for the Galatian Christians, the churches, and then as for us as well, by extension, as we continue to think about these things. And this is a very dense little section. We, we will not get through it all today. I hope to come back to it next Lord's Day. But I want to begin um, this section where he speaks about two covenants and two offsprings, verses 21 to 31. And we see, first of all, that Paul starts by just summarizing the basic outline of the biblical account of Abram, as we know him, or Abraham, and his two wives and the two sons. We read those sections earlier, so you can have them fresh in your mind. Uh, but let me just uh, make a few comments about sort of the flow of the way things went as we saw it unfolded in the scripture. In the very beginning, God called Abraham to himself out of a pagan people to worship and serve him, the one true and living God. God called to Abraham and said, follow me and come to a land that I will show to you and I will make from you, Abram, I will make from you a great nation and to your offspring I will give this land of promise, this land where I will make a home for you and will dwell with you. And so this promise was given, and Abram at that time was childless. He and his wife uh, had no children, and that continued on now for a number of years, close to a quarter of a century. Uh, but Abraham and his wife, in their barrenness, they, they cried out to God, and God brought Abram outside at night. We read the account in Genesis 15, and he told him to look up in the stars, and God reaffirmed his promise that he would have uh, descendants like the stars of the heavens. And there the Bible says that Abraham what? Say it. Abraham, yeah, okay, we'll make sure we got this. This is super important. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. And that is the paradigm of salvation. Salvation comes by believing the promise of God to provide salvation for his people. That salvation would come through Abraham's offspring. Abraham believed the promise. He had faith in God's word, and that faith was the foundation upon which he was declared to be righteous in the sight of God. Abraham was not doing anything. He was simply believing and trusting God who would do for him what he could not do for himself. This was the promise that played such a big part back in chapter 3 when Paul was making a contrast between the promise and the law. And he, this, this promise is a theme that runs through uh, the Old Testament, the covenants of Israel, the covenants with Israel that God made were 
uh, in large part, covenants of promise, as Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12 calls them. In other words, the covenants that God made with Israel contained in promise form the seeds of a new covenant. They were not that new covenant. Hebrews says that the new covenant is a specific kind of covenant, like a last will and testament. Some of you have made a last will and testament. Some of us are just now remembering that we need to update our last wills and testaments. But when you make a last will and testament, it comes into force. It begins to have its effect when you have the death of the one who made it. This is the argument of the writer of Hebrews exactly in Hebrews chapter 9. The New Testament is inaugurated at the death of Jesus Christ, sealed with his blood. However, old Israel's covenants revealed the new covenant ahead of time by way of promise. And so God made to Abraham a promise, and he sealed that promise with a covenant ceremony that's described in the latter part of that chapter where God actually put Abraham to sleep and God himself covenants with himself, as it were, um, for the securing of this covenant. He affirmed it in and of himself as an absolute and eternal covenant. Now, though Abraham did believe God and he was justified by faith, um, we see in Abraham's life what we see in all of our lives, that even a person of faith can have moments where he falters, moments where he struggles to act in accordance with his faith. And he was tempted in, in his barrenness, with, without any child, he was tempted to rely on his own strength, that is to provide his own salvation, as it were, and so Sarah made the suggestion that he take her slave, Hagar, to be his wife, as it were, and have a child by her. And he did so and fathered a child whom they named Ishmael. Sarah, uh, a god, then told Hagar, Ishmael's mother, Quote, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered. Just like he had said to Abraham, now he says to Hagar with regard to her children. And, the, um, and in Genesis 17 then, it's kind of, as we're working through our way through the story, just reminding ourselves, um, God gave then to Abraham the covenant sign. The sign of that covenant would be circumcision for Abraham and for all of his male descendants. He, so he circumcises himself and his son Ishmael in that same day um, in obedience to God. Finally, God, in the end, after all these years, supernaturally opened the barren womb of Abram's wife, Sarah. Sarah, I now called Sarah. And he opens her womb. She's beyond childbearing years. He as well, really. But she, um, beyond the time when any woman has a child and, and she just sort of supernaturally is able to bear this child and they have this baby and he is called Isaac. This child too is circumcised. But as he grows older, Ishmael, the son of the slave woman, taunts and mocks Isaac. And Sarah, 
as we read, says to Abraham, send her away. And God affirms that this is what they should do. And she is, she and the son are cast out into the wilderness. But even then, the Lord comes to her and he, or he comes to Abram and he confirms, he affirms the Abrahamic blessing will be extended even to Ishmael. He says in the words that we read earlier in chapter 21 of Genesis verse 13, and I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So what do we make of that? Who's the offspring? Ishmael is left out in the wilderness, not counted as part of Abraham's household. And yet he is Abraham's offspring and inherits an earthly blessing because of Abraham. And I think this passage, this text, is what Paul makes of that um, tension. Verses 24 to 26, now we see the interpretation of this history. And Paul's interpretation, in essence, we'll just kind of deal with this this morning. In verse 24, he says, Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. We'll come back to that, but let me just touch on this term allegory here. Um, Paul says these may be interpreted allegorically. It's an allegory because, of course, the women are not literally covenants. They represent covenants. We all are familiar with uh, many of us. Most of us are probably familiar with the, the uh, classic Pilgrim's Progress, an allegory where different characters represent different things and and, uh, and so this is, this is what the, this is going on. Paul's saying this is an allegorical statement. Now, I do want to make a quick note here um, that this is different, I believe, in a great degree from the kind of quote-unquote allegorical interpretations of the Bible that have uh, captured the imaginations of many uh, interpreters throughout history, especially up into... Uh, the Middle Ages and, and before the, the Reformation and the coming back to the, um, the, the plain teaching of the Scripture. Um, there were people who uh, interpreted the Bible, as they said, allegorically, using the same term but in a very different sort of way. They uh, made things in the Bible to stand for and represent things that were unsubstantiated by the biblical text. I remember reading um, back when I was preaching through um, John, I think it was, or, or Matthew, uh, where, where it talks about uh, them catching the big catch of fish, 153 fish they catch. And somebody says, now why did they write down that they caught 153 fish? Well, one, one person said, well, this is the Ten Commandments plus the seven spirits of God, so that's 17, times three for the Trinity, Father, Holy Son, and Holy Spirit, times three again for the holy, holy, holy perfection of God, and there's your 153. So things like that. They said this is the meaning of the Bible. This is sort of a hidden meaning that you common people can't get, but you depend on us, the holy teachers of the church, and we'll give you the real meaning behind uh, this passage. And this was a kind of popular sort of style in, in some circles of interpretation of the Bible, very arbitrary, where meanings could be various, where they would say that there could be even various legitimate meanings to any given text. 
No, friends, God means what he says. There is a single meaning in the scripture. While it's definitely a layered meaning in many texts, God has a single meaning. Paul's use of allegory here is far different from what some in church history have purported to, uh, to practice. It is driven by the Old Testament text itself, viewed typologically as as a foreshadowing of what God intended to bring about in the last days. So the former days, the days of the old covenant, the days of Israel, prepared us to understand something about the last days, the days of Christ, the days of the New Testament. And uh, this is what Paul is driving at. Now, his argument then is simply this, in, in, in in the... in the briefest sense, his argument is, these women, Sarah and Hagar, are two covenants. Now, Paul says that in Abraham, there are two covenants indicated, one of which he identifies as the covenant that is later affirmed on Mount Sinai. You see that in the text there? This covenant is associated with Mount Sinai. That is the covenant that, uh, in which God gave to Israel the law. We're all pretty familiar with that. This covenant is indicated in Abraham, he says. Abraham foreshadows the covenant that God would give at Sinai. These two covenants are made with the same people. That is the offspring of Abraham. They are given the same sign. That is circumcision. They are given the same promise. That is inheritance and blessing in the land of Canaan. And moreover, in the Old Testament text itself, whereas in Genesis 15, the promise of God is given as an unconditional covenant, God says to Abram, I will do this. When you get to Genesis 17, there seems to be a hint of conditionality, as if the blessings were conditioned on obedience. Genesis chapter 17, verse 1. The Lord says, I am God Almighty. He says to Abram, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Then he goes on to essentially restate the Abrahamic covenant, and then he gives the covenant sign, that is circumcision, for Abraham himself and for all of his descendants. This act, the act of circumcision on Abram's part, was an act of faith, an act of faith in God's promise. But the false teachers that plagued the Galatian churches were turning that act into a work of merit upon which to justify themselves before God. And certainly, um, circumcision was an act of outward obedience to God. It was something that God had commanded. But Paul's saying, if you are going to depend on your own obedience, um, then 
as the Lord said to Abram, you are going to need to be blameless. And Paul enlarges this through the lens of the Sinai covenant and says, you've got to keep all the law if this is going to be your mindset with regard to your circumcision. You have a similar hint of a condition of obedience in the next chapter in Genesis chapter 18 and verse 19. The Lord says, for I have chosen him, Abram, Abraham, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. So again, for Abraham, now his righteousness, think about his um, his willingness to obey God and sacrifice his own son. Abraham's righteousness is an act that springs from faith. But there was another principle embedded in this covenant, and that was a conditional principle, a works principle. As Paul will say in chapter 5, verse 3 of Galatians, every man who accepts circumcision is obligated to keep the whole law. This is the principle that's at work here that undergirds, that that is the warrant by which Paul says that in Abram, in Abraham, we have an expression of, of, uh, of a covenant of works. That principle, that works principle comes to the foreground, of course, in the Sinai covenant where it is emphasized, what's emphasized in the covenant at Mount Sinai? If you obey, you will live. You'll be blessed. If you disobey, you will suffer the curse and you will die. And Paul reminded them that the covenant curse would come upon those who did not continue to do all that was written in the book of the law to do it. The covenant of works demanded, we saw, In chapter 3, a personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience to the law. If that is the standing before God, then that is the kind of righteousness that God is going to demand. Because he is a perfect and just and holy God. In other words, in all of this this, um, section here in chapter 4, Paul is clarifying his former contrast between the Mosaic law at Mount Sinai and the Abrahamic covenant, the Abrahamic promise. Remember, he was contrasting those, but now he's saying that that contrast is not absolute. The Abrahamic covenant encompassed both a law principle, the covenant of works, as well as the promise of the covenant of grace. It was a promise a promise of a new covenant that God would make with his people, and that covenant would come in Christ. And in Christ, God will do for you what you failed to do and cannot do for yourself. That is Paul's gospel. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ, predicted and revealed in shadowy form throughout the time of the Old Covenant, 
And now that mystery that Paul was openly proclaiming in the days of Christ Jesus our Lord. What a beautiful thing to live in a day of gospel clarity. And now he says that there are not only the fact that there are two covenants in Abram, in Abraham, but I want you to see secondly, just kind of, again by way of his own interpretation of this, that Paul sees something about the nature and the tendency of those two covenants from the Old Testament scripture. Look at the middle of verse 24, and uh, you may or may not be sort of tracking with me. This is one you just have to just sort of think through a little bit, all right? There, there's really good things that come from that if we'll give ourselves to that. In the middle of verse 24, uh, Paul discusses one of these, um, these covenants that is, that is in Abram, Abraham, he says, one is from Mount Sinai bearing children for what? For slavery. This is uh, a covenant of, of works in Abram typified by his relationship with Hagar and the offspring of Ishmael. The other um, covenant, verse 26, is free, and it's typified by Sarah and by Isaac, and it is uh, a covenant of of works, and uh, and and a, um, a, a, a it tends towards slavery. This is what uh, Paul had argued back in the last chapter, chapter three. And in, and remember, in Acts chapter fifteen, the apostles referred to circumcision and all of the perfect obedience that the law implied as a quote yoke on our necks which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. So Paul is picking up on the same kind of understanding that there was, this was a slavery that, um, that was pictured in this, um, in this relationship and in, in this historical uh, context. And then the third thing I want you to see with regard to his interpretation here is that in Abram, in Abraham, there are two offsprings. There are two offsprings. Verse 23, he speaks about the son of the slave, and he says something about the nature of that, the birth of those, uh, that offspring. The, that is the offspring that is born according to the flesh. In other words, we're talking about Abraham's natural um, offspring, conceived by ordinary human means, Abraham and this fertile young slave woman, a natural, physical offspring of Abraham. And the end of verse 23, then he also speaks of the son of the free woman. And that offspring, he says, is born through what? Born through promise. Through the divine promise, God will give you a son, you and Sarah, that was brought about through supernatural power, this is a picture of spiritual birth, of supernatural birth. Sometimes we say being born again, not born of the flesh, but born of the spirit. Physical birth and circumcision and law-keeping 
are of no saving value. This is what is argued in many places in the scripture. That which is born of the flesh is what? Flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Jesus said, do not marvel that I say to you, you have to be born again. Romans chapter 3, he says, are the Jews, the descendants of Abraham, are they any better off? No, not at all. We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. He's arguing against these people who are looking to this sort of physical or, and or legal connection with Abraham as their hope. But according to Paul, there was in Abraham two distinct covenants bearing two offsprings. There were two distinct covenants. That is, in Abraham, we have the reestablishment of a kind of covenant of works, as well as a promise of a covenant of grace. The one would be fulfilled ultimately, finally, uh, in the Sinaitic covenant, the covenant on Mount Sinai, the old covenant. The other would be fulfilled in the new covenant, in Christ Jesus and in his shed blood. The one was typological and centered on an earthly Jerusalem and a physical promised land, while the other was eschatological and focused on the new Jerusalem and eternal life. The one was made with all of Abraham's physical offspring, and the other made only with Abraham's spiritual offspring. The one was marked by the circumcision of the flesh, the other marked by spiritual circumcision, the circumcision made without hands. The one focused on obedience to the law, personal obedience to the law, the other focused on the vicarious obedience of Jesus Christ that was full and complete. And the one brings about only a kind of slavery, while the other makes one a true child of God. But now he's writing to a church, a group of churches, Gentiles largely, who are yet now, because of this false teaching, seeking to be right with God in terms of the law covenant. And if they continued, then they would find themselves no better off than the physical seed of Abraham, who, like Ishmael, ironically, were driven out into the wilderness. I just want to stop there for this morning and, and, and ask you to think about this question, by which covenant, by which arrangement do you think of yourself, uh, I should say, by which arrangement are you relating to God in terms of works or in terms of faith, in terms of nature or in terms of grace? It is so easy for people to slip back into a kind of legal mindset to justify myself by my connections. Well, my parents were Christians. 
or to justify myself by my actions. Well, I'm putting my trust in my moral performance or my religious rituals that I go through. Those, I hope, will be enough to make me right with God. Listen, friend, looking to anything else other than to Jesus Christ will end you in slavery. Just as this um, picture uh, begins to show us. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, said, Hagar was never a free woman, and Sarah was never a slave. So, beloved, the covenant of works never was free, and none of her children ever were. All those who trust in works are never free and never can be, even though, even if they could be perfect in good works, even if they had no sin, they are still bond slaves. For when they have done all that they ought to have done, God is not our debtor, but we are debtors still to him. For when we have done what we ought, we still remain as bond slaves. If I could keep all God's law, I should have no right to favor, for I should have done no more than was my duty and be a bond slave still. The law is the most rigorous master in the world. No wise man would ever love its service. For after all you have done, the law never gives a thank you for it, but says, go on, sir, go on. For the poor sinner trying to be saved by the law is like a blind horse going round and round a mill and never getting a step further, but only being whipped continually. Yea, the faster he goes, the more work he does, the more he is tired, and the much worse for him. The better legalist a man is, the more he is sure of being damned. The more holy a man is, if he trusts his works, the more he may rest assured of his own final rejection and eternal portion with the Pharisees. Hagar was a slave. Ishmael, moral and good as he was, was nothing but a slave and never could be more. Not all the works he ever rendered to his father could make him a freeborn son. And there is only one hope, one hope and one alone for any of you, any of us, to be a child of God. And that is faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word today. We thank you for the instruction that it's given. We pray for continued light we may understand and embrace the gospel and uh, be clear in the way that we are to worship and serve you. I pray even now that if there is any here who is yet subtly trusting in his own work or in his own connection to his believing family, I pray, Lord, that you would cause all of those false hopes to be stripped away you would point the heart of every person in here to your beloved son, to him alone. Show us our sin by the ministry of the law and drive us to Christ, we pray, in the beauty of his gospel. In his name we ask.
Amen.